friend of mine who spoke here yesterday at our first ever Lansing Talks and is back again here this morning to give a challenge to all of us to be intentional in our relationships with people, especially people outside the church. Uh, I met Mark for the first time about five years ago at a Christian Businessmen Connection uh, lunch or dinner, something like that. And for the first time, even though I had been a pastor, I'd been a missionary, I'd been a Bible college administrator. Currently, at that time, I was uh, administrator of a, a non Christian nonprofit. Though I had all that history, when he shared that time from 2 Corinthians 5.20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Something about his story captured my heart. And one of the things that he said is that all of us, as followers of Jesus Christ, are ambassadors. It's not a choice that we have. We have a choice whether to be a good one or a bad one, but we are ambassadors. And he said that made such an impact on his life when he learned about that, that he decided that that was going to be what defined him, what represented him, and even to put it on his business card, which I have one of his business cards here, and it is on the back. So we are Christ's ambassadors, Christ making his appeal through us. And at that moment, I determined I was going to do the same thing. So here's my business card at South Church. Tim Van Lowe, pastor for evangelism and outreach, ambassador for Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.20. And I pray that through listening to Mark this morning, you too will be inspired to take this role, take this calling seriously, this awesome, great responsibility and privilege that we all have. Mark, please share with us. God bless you. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Tim, for that warm welcome, and it's great to be here. Always uh, wonderful to be in Lansing, and I started speaking in Lansing, I guess this is maybe my seventh time, and I spoke first time at the annual prayer breakfast that you have each spring, and I spoke in 2012 at that, at that prayer breakfast, and it's always glad, always excited about being back here in Lansing, so I'm honored and privileged for, for being here, so thanks for having me uh, to share here this morning. And the questions that we're going to be, uh, I'm going to have some slides that we're going to share, but uh, the questions that I'm going to be answering today are the following. What does God say? about being ambassador for Christ. Uh, what is God, how does God define that? As you shared this morning, and as Tim just shared, 2 Corinthians 5.20 makes it clear that we are Christ's ambassadors. But what does that mean, and how, how can we be a, a more effective ambassador? That's one of the questions we're going to be answering today. And also, what, what does God say about our work and, 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 and all the aspects of our life? So everything that we do in our life, our home life, our personal life, our family life, our, our work life, every aspect of our life, God wants us to be engaged and God wants us to be his ambassador. So we're going to be sharing, talking about that uh, this morning, but about really what an effective ambassador, what an effective ambassador looks like. Because 2 Corinthians 5.20 says we are Christ's ambassador. So the only question is, how effective are we? And can we, and can we become more effective? And how can we become more effective and those are some of the things we're going to be talking about, talking about this morning. And I'm going to start it off with a, a, a story. I shared this story in detail, much more detail last night. This is going to be abbreviated right now. I'm going to share a story where two ambassadors for Christ reached out to me at a time that I wasn't a Christian and planted seeds that changed my life. This happened 21 years ago and changed my life forever. So I'm going to share abbreviated that story. If you want to see a lot more details, that was recorded last night. 
here at South Church. And they're going to make that available on the, on the South Church uh, website. Uh, but those details, like I said, was a lot more detail last night. But I just wanted, for those that couldn't be here last night, have an abbreviated, an abbreviated session about two ambassadors for Christ that reached out to me and really planted seeds that changed my life forever. Just uh, briefly, I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. My wife, Ginger, also grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. My wife, Ginger, is here. Actually, she's at one of the AB sessions uh, this morning, ABC uh, uh, Bible School or church, you know, the Sunday school classes uh, this morning. So she's going to be at all three services, the other two services too, but she did want to attend one of these ABC sessions. So she's upstairs at one of those, actually the one that Tim is teaching this morning. But we both grew up in Cincinnati, uh, about 40 minutes north of Cincinnati where Kings Island is located. I think a lot of you may know where, where Kings Island is, about 40 minutes uh, north of Cincinnati. That's where we grew up. We both went to Ohio State University. Uh, I know that's a difficult thing to say here in uh, probably in Michigan, Ohio State. And then I went to Cornell University. I got a bachelor's and master's from Ohio State and then went to Cornell University and got my Ph.D. in biochemistry uh, in Ivy League school. I had full scholarship for all eight years of my education. And boy, I was very self-centered. It was all about me. I can remember those other Ph.D. students that were with me at Ohio State. All we thought about, boy, we're going to be making millions of dollars with this Ivy League education that we have. I mean, it was a very self-centeredness. What I'm describing now is an example of selfish leadership, not servant leadership. It was at that age and stage, I was 22 years old as a PhD student, graduated 25. And boy, at that stage uh, in my life, it was all about me. And that's what I thought why we went to college for. We went to college to make as much money as we could, to get as good a job as we could get. And that's what my focus was uh, during that time in my life. I can remember when I was 32 years old, I was divisional president of uh, the biotech division of one of the largest companies in the world, a company called ADM, Archer Daniels Midland. ADM would be the 31st largest company in America today, number 41. We were the 56th largest company on the Fortune 500 when I joined them in 1989 when I joined them. And I was number four, we had 30,000 executives. I was ranked number four at age 32, divisional president, reported right to the vice chairman. And boy, did I thought I was a rock star. I had hair back then, too, and I thought I was Bon Jovi uh, back, back then. I really do, did in that, stage in, in that stage in my life. You know, to be number four executive, the CEO was 75 years old, the president was 69, and I was 32 years old. And all I had to do was just wait a few years until they retired to take one of their spots to become either the CEO or the COO. I, I really thought at that stage in life, boy, if there's a heaven, this is it is what I was thinking uh, during that time. I remember my first week at work, I, I received a Falcon 50. Uh, I don't know if that slide's coming up. That's a picture of the plane uh, that I had uh, during that time. Uh, the seven top executives each got their own jet. Uh, so my first week at work there in October of 89, I was given a Falcon 50. And like I said, I definitely thought I was a rock star at that point to have a corporate jet, age 32, my first week at work. And and I bought the CEO's home. He wanted to move to something smaller, being age 75. My first month working there, I bought his home, a 13,000-square-foot house, uh, eight-car garage, uh, nine bedrooms. I mean, it was a mansion with three golf greens on the property, horse-riding stables where your kids could ride in an inside arena during the time when it was wintertime outside and so on, to ADM's headquarters in Decatur, Illinois. So that's where we lived for eight years uh, during the time that I worked for them in this in that home, in this mansion. And I said, look out, Justin Bieber, here I come, is what I was thinking uh, during that period of my life. 
And it's amazing, it all changed uh, a couple years after working there. Uh, Ginger, like I said, Ginger, you, you may have a chance to meet her. She's here at the church uh, today. Uh, but we met when she was in seventh grade, and I was in eighth grade is when we first met. Went to our high school proms together, and, and uh, uh, we were homecoming queen and king. I was president of my class. She was treasurer of her class. She was one year behind me in school. So when I was a senior, she was a junior. And one time, she set me down one time in November 5th, 1992, three years after I'm with ADM. Because at a time when my obsession was in greed and power and moving up in the company, a very selfish life, she was getting more obsessed with Jesus and with God. Her relationship with God was growing. She became a Christian years before I did. And she set me down one time on November 5th, 1992. And she said, Mark, what's going on with your life? And I said, Ginger, we're three years here now at this company. We live in a mansion, a 13,000 square foot house. We got an eight car garage full of eight cars. I had a Ferrari, two BMWs, two Mercedes, the corporate jet. I said, I don't think life could get any better than this. And she said, boy, Mark, I'd rather have two Fords in the driveway and have a 2,000 square foot house and have my husband at home. She said, I've lost my husband in this journey that you're on. You're so obsessed with your job. You're married to your job and you're not spending any time with her or our three young children. I said, Ginger, I have to keep working like this to keep moving up in the company. They could easily replace me. So for me to keep moving up and to maintain this job, I have to keep working like this. And then she said, Mark, something's changed these last seven months that you've worked at ADM. Every night when you come home from work, you're on the phone three or four hours a night, every night. And I said, Ginger, I have to be on the phone at night now because now that the CEO trusts me, I'm part of the family. He's been CEO for 30 years. He's now 78 years old. Keep in mind, this is three years after I started there. So now he wants to show me how ADM does business. And she said, well, what do you mean how ADM does business? And I said, well, they have an international cartel, and they're fixing the prices of all their ingredients, the, the food ingredients that go into your food that you buy in a grocery store, Kellogg's cereal and Kraft and Pillsbury and iced teas and orange juices and Coca-Colas and Pepsis. I said, they're fixing the prices of those ingredients that go in those foods, and they're earning a much higher income, the company is, by doing that. And they've been doing it for 12 years. And I've been involved for seven months. They're showing me how to take that over at some point. She said, Mark, that sounds like stealing. I said, well, Ginger, everybody does it. It's, it's exactly what they told me in the commodity business. You can't be in this business without doing this. Ginger, they've been there 30 plus years. I've only been there three. They know a lot more than me. This is how business is done. This is the real world. She said, well, who pays for this price fixing? I said, basically, every consumer that goes to the grocery store, they pay a higher price for those foods to pay for this, these ingredients that are price fixed, get price gouging uh, of these ingredients. She said, well, how much does the company earn extra by doing this? And I said, they earn about an extra billion dollars a year, not a million, this is a $70 billion company. They earn about a billion dollars a year by doing this. She goes, you mean Mark, my grandma on $200 a week, Social Security is paying for this? She said, I don't know if I can live with this, Mark. And then she said the thing I never wanted to hear. She said she was going to go back in her study and pray about it, and we talk about it later. When she said that, I knew I was in trouble. She came back a couple hours later, and she said, Mark, I've made a decision. God led me to a decision. God led me to turn you into the FBI. 
I said, Ginger, I could go to prison for price fixing. It's illegal. And the CEO is best friends with President Clinton. He went to President Clinton's, he went on uh, President Nixon's funeral on President Clinton's plane. He was one of the major guys that for campaign finance for basically paid for President Clinton's campaign. I said, they're best of friends. They're on the phone with each other. This company will come after us with everything they have. And she said, you know what, Mark? God will protect us. There's nobody going to come after us. God is going to protect us, but we've got to do the right thing here. This is a billion-dollar theft that's been going on for 12 years in a row. And boy, I tell you, like I said, I've known her since she was in seventh grade, and I could not talk her out of it. And within two hours from the time I told Ginger, we're sitting with the FBI. A case that was going on for 12 years. And I tell her about it two hours later, we're sitting with the FBI on one of the largest price-fixing cases in U.S. history, started by a stay-at-home mom raising three young children. So we share this with the FBI for four hours. We're young and naive. We have no attorneys or anything like that. And like I said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I went into a lot more detail in this last night, so if you wanted to see the recording, because I'm about ready to kind of move on, section this into a different section. But when we shared with the FBI, the FBI gave me a choice that day to either start wearing a wire for them or be arrested. Even though I was only involved seven months, that's a choice I had. Well, in my mid-30s, it just seemed a lot more attractive to wear a wire for the FBI than to be arrested. So I met four FBI agents at 6 o'clock the next morning. They shaved my chest. They hooked microphones to my chest. They had a tape recorder on my back, a tape recorder in a briefcase, and another tape recorder in a notebook, three different tape recorders. At 6 in the morning, and I went to work all day long, met the FBI agents at night, and turned over all the tapes. And I did that every Monday through Friday for three years. I wore a wire every day for 9, 10 hours a day for three years for the FBI. And it was an interesting experience, not an experience that I recommend to any of you. It was an interesting journey. And it's interesting, during that time, this green lamp was at all our meetings. We had 11 different companies that we had the, the price-fixing meetings with, the, what we call our co-defendants or the co-conspirators. And these 11 companies, we'd, we'd meet together, 11 executives in different rooms around the world, in Singapore, and the Shangri-La Hotel, the Mandarin Hotel in Hong Kong, the Four Seasons Hotel in Chicago. In each of these meetings that we meet, this green lamp would be there because the FBI had the green lamp in the room because that's where the video camera was, in the green lamp. So that green lamp looks like it came from a yard sale, was in the nicest hotels in the world. Shangri-La and Four Seasons Hotel in Chicago and Mandarin Hotel in Hong Kong and two or three meetings a month. That same green lamp was with the same 11 guys sitting five feet from them with a video camera in it, taping everything that was said by everyone that, uh, that, that started sharing in this, in this conspiracy, in this crime, in this price-fixing crime. And the amazing thing is that green lamp, two or three meetings a month for three years, was with 11 guys five feet from them. I look back now 25 years later, and I thank God there wasn't a woman criminal among us. Because I believe if we had a woman criminal among us, she would have said, you know what, that green lamp has fallen us around the world. Because no matter what room we were in, $1,000 night hotels, that green lamp was there that had the video camera in it two or three times a month with the same 11 guys for, for three years. It's the amazing thing, after doing all this cooperation and after wearing a wire, the FBI gave me a deal of a lifetime. Six months, a Martha Stewart sentence in a six-month sentence. Six-month sentence in a white-collar camp with no fence. Deal of a lifetime. The other guys were all going to go to prison for years, and I was going to get six months. You know, I was so upset, didn't want to accept six months, and Ginger begged me to sign it. I looked at Ginger, we were in front of our lawyer, and I had 48 hours to sign that plea agreement. And I said, Ginger, 
I said, I'm in this mess because of you. And I ripped that plea agreement up and tore it up and ripped it up in front of her and, and fired my lawyer on the spot and hired another whole group of lawyers the next day and fought the case for three and a half years in the court to get a 10-year sentence instead, three and a half years later. And I had a six-month sentence right in my hand, just like Martha Stewart had, the same sentence that she would have had in a white-collar white camp. Tremendous mistake during that time. Wasn't thinking clearly. This is after wearing a wire for three years. And wasn't thinking clearly, obviously, at all uh, during that time. And put my family in a lot of pain because I could have went to prison for six months, but instead I went for eight and a half years. Because in the federal system, there's no parole. You get 15% off good behavior. So I had to do eight and a half years on a 10-year sentence, and I could have went for six months. I was so depressed during that time, knowing I had eight and a half years in front of me. I pulled my car in one of those garages and wrote a letter, 17-page letter to Ginger and my kids and tried to kill myself. I could not imagine going to prison from age 40 to age 49. So I tried to take my own life. I was hospitalized for a month after trying that, heavily treated for post-traumatic stress disorder and some of the things that happen when you wear a wire 10 hours a day for three years. I lost 60 pounds during that time. I mean, people in their company thought I had cancer. I mean, I was under so much stress wearing that wire for 10 hours a day for three years. The FBI don't even allow any bear, anybody to wear a wire more than a year anymore because they saw what happens when someone wears one for three. I was torn apart during that time. And so I was sent home after I attempted suicide, after a month of being treated. The judge gave me seven months to get back on my feet before I had to start my eight and a half year prison sentence to get my, uh, my house in order, so to speak. And during that time, now I want to get to what I really want to get to. Like I said, the details of that are, was recorded last night when Ginger and I spoke here at South Church. But this guy, Ian House, he was a CFO of a large pharmaceutical company and also a member of CBMC, Christian Businessmen Connection, an organization I never heard of. This is fall of 1997, 22 years ago. He showed up on my doorstep. He was reading all this that I'm describing to you in the newspaper including about where I tried to take my own life. He showed up on my doorstep, and Ginger said someone wanted to talk to me, a stranger. We didn't know him. And I went out to the front door and to see what he had in mind. Keep in mind, I just attempted suicide a month ago. At that point, all was I was thinking of, how could I attempt suicide again and actually make it work the next time? I mean, I still wanted to take my own life before I showed up in prison seven months from that point. And Ian Howes was at my doorstep, and he said, Mark, I want to let you know prison's going to be the beginning of your life and you're going to find your true purpose in your life with the journey you're ready to start. I remember running back to the kitchen. I said, Ginger, there's somebody in the porch that's crazier than I am. She said, that can't be, first thing she said. I said, prison, he said, prison's going to be the beginning of my life, and I'm going to find my true purpose in my life. She fell to her knees and started crying, and she said, thank God, God sent somebody. Thank God some, sent somebody. She said, Mark, I've been praying for you for 10 years and you haven't listened to me and you haven't listened to your parents. But we've been telling you about God for 10 years and you haven't listened to us. So I pray you go listen to that man that's on the doorstep. So I went out and I said, Ian, what do you have in mind? He said he had a study by CBMC called Operation Timothy and a Bible. And basically Operation Timothy is an introduction to the Bible and an introduction to God and an introduction to Jesus. And he started going through that study with me before I went to prison and started planting seeds, going through the four gospel and the, and the book of, we started with the book of John 
and then the book of Mark. And it started giving me hope. I wasn't a Christian yet, but it started giving me hope that maybe I don't have to take my own life. Maybe I can get through this, and maybe my family can get through this, and maybe we can survive this. A few months after that, it was my second week in prison. I was still going through Bible study with Ian Howes, and this man showed up, Chuck Colson, a second ambassador for Christ, showed up. And Chuck Colson was the White House counsel for President Nixon, had an office right next to the Oval Office, went to prison actually 20 years earlier than me for the Watergate scandal in the 1970s. He showed up, second week in prison, and he said, Mark, prison is going to be the beginning of your life. And I said, that's the same thing Ian Howes has been telling me for seven months. And he said, Ian Howes, who's that? And I said, he's taking me through a Bible study and, and introduced me to Jesus. And he said, Mark, have you surrendered your life to Jesus yet? I said, not yet, I haven't. And he said, why not? What's holding you back? And I said, well, I went eight years of college to be a scientist. And all those eight years of college, all I learned from these professors was there was no God. The Big Bang Theory, evolution, Darwinism, all the things in science about evolution and that there is no God. It's all I learned. So that's, that's, that's obstructionist for me. That's a hurdle for me because of that. And he said, Mark, you don't think there's a scientist that believes in God? And I said, I don't. Oh, he started sending me article after article and book after book of all these PhD scientists that believed in God. Even Albert Einstein said the Big Bang Theory is impossible. Only God could create the universe and create man. Create man. So I read all these books and read articles. And a couple months after being discipled by Chuck Colson, I got down on my 10 by 10 and a concrete floor and a locker and a roommate. After having a 13,000 square foot house, I had a 10 by 10 for eight and a half years. After having a couple million dollars a year bonuses and stock options and pay for eight years, I had then eight, eight, eight and a half years for $20 a month in federal prison. In my third month in prison, after Ian Howes and Chuck Colson were discipling me, I got down on my knees and surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. June 4th, 1998, my third month in prison. And then I thought, during my quiet time, I said, well, well God, Ian and Chuck said I would find my purpose in my life. I have eight years of prison yet to do. What can my purpose of my life be in prison for eight more years? And then I looked at those Operation Timothy books. I looked at that Bible that Chuck Colson gave me and the Operation Timothy books that Ian Howes gave me. And I thought, where are people more helpless and hopeless than federal prison? And I started discipling guys one by one till I took 61 guys through the same Bible study that Chuck Colson and Ian Howes were taking me. The eight and a half years in federal prison ended up being, ended up being my most productive years of my life. Because for the first time in my life, I was helping somebody else besides myself. And I helped guys get their GEDs and learn how to read and learn how to write. And they were productive years. Well, what do these guys have in common, Chuck Colson and Ian House? Besides being Christians, what did they have in common? You know, one was from the North Carolina area. Chuck Colson was pres uh, chairman of a prison fellowship in D.C. They didn't know each other well. They knew each other from me, who they were. But what did they have in common? Well, here's what they had in common, that there's no better place, no better place for ministry than the marketplace itself or your everyday lives. No better place. I mean, to take what we learn in church here on Sunday and then to carry it out Monday through Friday into our lives. There's no better place. Well, let's talk about that. Why would that be the case, that there's no better place for ministry than that? Because God said so. Where does God say so? Let's talk about that. Where does God say so? Well, what, what does God say about our work, for example? Well, here's what God says about our work. What is the first thing that God did? What is the first thing that God did 
when he created Adam? What's the first thing he did? He put Adam to work. He put Adam in the Garden of Eve, in the Garden of Eden. And then when Eve was created, he put Eve in the Garden of Eden. That's the first thing that God did. Genesis 2.15 makes that clear. The first thing that God did, he put him in the Garden of Eden. So our work does matter to God. Because when he created man, the first thing he did, he put him to work to maintain and cultivate that, that garden. Let's talk further about that. What can we learn from Jesus about the marketplace or about our everyday lives being an important place for ministry? What can we learn from Jesus? Well, did you know this fact? And I learned this from Chuck Colson. And you can Google this fact and you see it's true. 122 out of 132 public appearances in Scripture... There's 132 public appearances of Scripture of Jesus. In 122 of them, 92% of them were the marketplace. Jesus was showing us that there's no better place for ministry than we're at in our everyday lives. Jesus shows us that. I mean, Jesus died on a cross for our sins. And we have to repent for those sins. And it took me going to prison. It took me, it took me surrendering my life to Jesus to know I had to repent. And I had to change my ways. Not because I'm afraid to get caught because of a crime. But I had to change my ways and be an ambassador for Jesus. And to be serve, and serve Him. To be a servant leader instead of a selfish leader. Jesus shows us how. In, in, the, in, in all the scriptures about how He worked with His disciples Himself. So 122 of His public appearances were in the marketplace. Well, why would that be the case? Because that's where the people are. People spend over 50% of their time at work. And then less than 5% of their time at church. And less than 45% of their time at home. I'm talking about waking hours. Hours that you're awake. Over 50% of your time is at work. Well, what does God say about our work? Well, here's an important scripture that God says about everything we do. Not just our work, but our work and everything. Whatever you do, do it with all your heart. Like you're working for the Lord and not for man. That's your home life, your work life, your church life. No matter what you do, do it with all your heart. And that's what I saw in Chuck Colson and Ian House. They had to fly to come and see me. Chuck Colson was coming to see me almost one Saturday a month from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. for eight and a half years and had to fly to get there. He is a busy man, had lots of things to do and his family and his job. And Ian House the same, but they poured their life into me because God led them to pour their life into thee and plant seeds to change the life of another person. What about the 12, 12 disciples, the 12 apostles? They all came from the marketplace, all 12 of them. Fisherman, tax collector, doctor, Luke. All of them came from the marketplace. But the amazing thing after Jesus resurrected and, and was ascended back to heaven, all those disciples went back to the marketplace, but they shared their faith. They did things differently than they, before they did know Jesus. They shared their faith and they shared their gospel. Well, why would they do that? Well, the scripture like we talked about that was shared earlier today, 2 Corinthians 5.20, if you're a believer in Jesus, if you're a believer, you're an ambassador for Christ. We represent Jesus here on earth. We are those 12 disciples today. We are those disciples and how is someone that going to know like me who didn't know God, how am I going to learn about God if it wasn't someone like Chuck Colson or Ian Howes sharing it with me? We are those disciples. We're expected to share that with others. The only question is, how effective are we? How effective disciples are we? And can we become more effective than we are currently? Well, two scriptures 
that really represent the purpose of our life is this. Matthew 28, 19, before Jesus ascended back to heaven, Matthew 28, 19, he shared with those disciples, he said, go and make disciples of all nations. Go share the gospel. And boy, they did. And matter of fact, they died for him. And they were persecuted for him. Even though they denied him before he was, even though they denied him before he was resurrected, at this point in their lives, they died for, for Jesus and were punished and went through prison and lots of punishment to support Jesus and be a witness for Jesus. Another scripture, it's the purpose of our life, is second is uh, Second Timothy 2:2, where Paul's telling Timothy, take these things you learned from me and go share with others. Second Timothy 2:2. Just like Edian Howes and Chuck Colson, those things I learned from them, I shared with others in those prisons. Those 61 guys I took through prison. I got four Timothys now, still today. I've had 78 Timothys in the last 21 years. It's the most important thing, I believe, in the purpose of my life is to share with guys that don't know Jesus for them to get to know Jesus and have the same life and have eternal life like what, what I'm describing here. So that is the purpose of our life is to be a witness for Jesus and to be evangelism and discipleship. Share our faith in our sphere of influence. That is the purpose. Matthew 28, 19 and 2 Timothy 2, 2. I feel strongly that's the purpose of our life. I have the opportunity and the blessing to go speak at eight, nine places like this a month, almost 100 times a year. And I'm going to do this until I can't do it anymore. And also I'm employed, I'm employed in a biotech company, I'm also employed in CBMC, but I still feel the purpose of my life is to share, and share the gospel, and share the good news, and share the truth about Jesus. If you want to know further about this, there is a study that Tim uh, Von, Von Lowe has, and please feel free to contact him, to contact him who introduced me, and he has a study about how you can become better equipped to be the ambassador that God designed you to be. And I highly recommend that if you want to learn more about this. Well, thank you for having me today. It's great to be here. It's great to be sharing. And God bless all of you. Thank you. Really quick prayer. And I'm going to pray for, I'm going to pray for all of you. Father, what a blessing it is to be here. And Father, what a blessing it is to serve you. I pray for everyone here today, Father, if they don't know you, a seed's planted in their hearts where they get to know you. And for all the ones that know you here today, Father, I pray that they get re-energized and renewed and that they go out and have the desire and passion to share the good news with their sphere of influence, with their neighbors, the ones they work with, to be the ambassador for Christ, Father, you designed them to be. And I pray that in Jesus' strong name. Amen. Thank you. God bless you. And as we close, let's turn your hymnals to hymn number 296. We have a story to tell to the nations. But by way of reminder, before we sing, uh, there will be prayer partners available at the front uh, to, to take advantage of that. As well as, this, let me remind you that uh, tonight at 6 o'clock, there's the annual meeting where we will vote on new candidates. And also the Simply South luncheon. So if you're new at South, that uh, there'll be a lunch right after the second service. Hymn number 296, let's stand as we close. We have a story to tell to the nation.